here tonight. I wasn't sure after this morning, after I screamed and yelled at everybody all morning, if you were going to come back or not. And uh, But I'm glad to see you here and uh, come back for uh, seconds. And uh, we're looking forward to the Lord meeting with us tonight. And uh, I, am, I am so honored that Pastor has given me this opportunity, not something that I take uh, for granted or lightly. And uh, I trust that um, we will uh, receive a blessing uh, from the Word of God this evening. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse number 15. We'll read two verses here. The Bible tells us, So the wall was finished in the twenty and fifth day of the month, the Elul, in fifty and two days. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof, and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. And uh, we see in this passage here a tremendous story. I mean, you look at this and anybody uh, who knows uh, anything about the story of Nehemiah and the children of Israel and their endeavors uh, to get out of cap- uh, captivity and to rebuild Jerusalem, uh, we see here a tremendous testimony of God's work. You got to think and remember, uh, this has been uh, over, and, over 120 years since the children of Israel have been taken captive originally. This is actually closer to 150 years since Jerusalem has been destroyed. And so now, finally, after all this time, the walls are finally rebuilt. And not only are they rebuilt, but in just 52 days, Nehemiah comes back and rebuilds the city walls. You think about this miraculous thing that took place and how awesome it was. So awesome, in fact, that the enemies that were around the city recognized what had been done. And it says that uh, they, they perceived, that they saw, uh, they were cast down in their own eyes. They were discouraged. They're like, man, how did this happen? How did this happen? For they perceived that this work was wrought by God. And it surely was. To all of us who've ever read this story, it, it is certainly nothing less than a miracle. To see what God had done through the children of Israel and Nehemiah as he came and rallied the people and and got them to to build the wall. We see the picture in our minds. Uh, Ever since I was a young child in Sunday school, I see the picture of the man on the scaffolding next to the wall with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And that's forever ingrained in my mind, that image of just God working. And it is such a tremendous picture of what we go through on a daily basis in the spiritual warfare that we fight. That we must constantly be building but always on guard always in defense, always ready to fend off the attack of the enemy. As I studied this story, however, in most instances, when you start to delve into anything in the Word of God and study it more deeply, there's things that become clearer. There's truths that become more profound. There's stories that are already magnificent, but even become more so on a grander scale. And that's what occurred to me as I was studying this story of Nehemiah and putting together uh, this message for this evening. Actually, it started just as a Bible study. And I wanted to, to look into it, and I just kept going further and further and further. In order to properly study Nehemiah, you have to do a lot of legwork. Nehemiah is part of the historical books, and so it, it contains a lot of history and a lot of information. You have to look at Second Chronicles. Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, and Esther. If you're going to study the book of Nehemiah, it includes all of those historical books because they're all intertwined together and they, and they all contribute to each other. And so we're going to look this evening, not at all those books. We don't have the time for that. But I want to 
present the thought this evening of before the walls were built. Before the walls were built. Father, Lord, we do come before you. Oh God, I need you. I need you to work in me. I need you to work through me. Lord, may I not say anything you don't want me to say, and may I say exactly what you want me to say. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, I'm stirred and encouraged already through the ministry of today, through the morning service and Sunday school, Lord, through the bus ministry this afternoon and souls that were saved, the visitors that were in your house today. And Lord, I'm just, I'm excited to see what you have for us this evening. Lord, please speak to our hearts, work in our midst. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. To begin our study this evening, let's go ahead and hop back to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6, if you will, and and we'll be in the book of Ezra uh, for a few moments. For the sake of time tonight, this is as far back as we will go. We won't look into Haggai or Zechariah. Tonight we will just look at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in Ezra chapter 6, we see a very important verse. In Ezra chapter 6 verse 1. And the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity, and all as such had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land to seek the Lord God of Israel, did eat and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. You think about it here, here's the children of Israel. And uh, the beginning of the book of Ezra, in fact, really has nothing to do with Ezra at all. The first six chapters are the first stage of the children of Israel being released from captivity. And in this, in this part of the scripture, uh, Zerubbabel, he is the leader. Okay, He's the one that's bringing the children of Israel out. And so here, uh, Zerubbabel has separated the children of Israel. The children of Israel had separated themselves. And the king, King, uh, king Cyrus at the time... All right, King Cyrus, he, he uh, separates uh, the, the, the children of Israel and he says, all right, I'm going to release you. And this was all part, obviously we know, uh, of the, the prophecy of Jeremiah that Cyrus would conquer Babylon. And Cyrus would make the opportunity for the children of Israel to be released from captivity. And so here King Cyrus steps in as king and the Bible tells us, if we look back in Ezra, uh, the beginning of chapter number 6, it says in the first year of the king uh, Cyrus that he made a decree. And his decree was that the children of Israel could be let go, that they should be released to build a temple in their home city and to rebuild their city. This is a very significant fact, I believe. Here's King Cyrus, a polytheistic king. He does not believe in the God of Israel as the God of heaven, of earth, and of all creation. He believes in many gods. And so here he releases the children of Israel To his own gain, really. Not because he loved them or cared for them, but he released them because it was his his policy that he would release people with different gods, send them back to their hometowns to rebuild the temple, to rebuild their cities, and it was kind of a two-part policy. The first part was, I'll send you back, but you need to pray for my success. And then also, he used it as kind of a buffer from himself. He had all these nations. He sent the people back home. And so now he kind of, they're kind of a buffer for me. If I'm to be attacked, I'm going to hear about it. I'm going to know about it because I've sent these people back to their home countries. And so here, oh man, it's so awesome to think that a, that a man who has nothing to do with God, who doesn't really serve the living God, is being used by God. Yes, amen. And it reminds me, 
ever so uh, clearly of the verse of how the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he turneth it whithersoever he will. And man, God turns the heart of King Cyrus and he releases the children of Israel. The children of Israel begin the four-month journey back. Not only does he release the children of Israel, but with his release, uh, the Bible says that um, he gives Zerubbabel uh, letters of passport and he gives them uh, gold and things from the treasury. He, he bestows upon him all of the artifacts that were taken from the t- King Solomon's temple to begin with. He gives it all back to him and says, go back and build your, rebuild your temple. Zerubbabel, uh, Zerubbabel goes back to the, the, uh, the, the city of Israel, or to Jerusalem, and we see um, that Zerubbabel begins the process of rebuilding. Zerubbabel went back with 50, just under 50,000 of the Israelites. This was no small task. He brought a large group of people back to the hometown uh, to the to the uh, the effect or for the effort of rebuilding the city. And the Bible tells us in the verse that we just read that these people uh, were the Levites. They were the the leaders, the spiritual leaders of their time. But they were also just common people who had separated themselves unto the Lord. And so they go back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. However, immediately. After beginning this process, opposition arises. And it's important, church, that we notice tonight and is ingrained in our minds that every time the church or God's people set out to do a task for God, opposition will arise. Opposition will arise. And we see here in this, in this passage that opposition arises. The enemy begins to attack and, and uh, the adversary is out to destroy them. Accusations are made and, and, uh, and, and the, the world is doing everything in its power to hinder the work of God. Christians, tonight, church, it's so important in our lives that we realize that the life of faith is never easy. But God can overrule all opposition. When we serve Him, we will face opposition, but we must not falter or withdraw we must keep active and stay patient and continue in the fight. The children of Israel did not do that. The children of Israel were opposed. And they essentially, for all intents and purposes, threw in the towel. They gave up the fight. They spent eight years in Jerusalem. And in eight years, the only thing that they got accomplished was rebuilding the foundation of the temple. Eight years it took them to rebuild the foundation. And they were completely discouraged. They had given up hope. They, they weren't even, it had come to a halt. They weren't even moving forward anymore. And that's exactly what the devil wants to happen in our lives. We're going to be moving forward and making progress. And then he's going to throw opposition, opposition, opposition. And it's going to come our way and hit us so hard. He's going to try to knock us off our feet to the best of his ability. And that's when we have to keep on fighting. Unlike the children of Israel here who give up the fight eight years and only a foundation in place. Eight years. It's around this time that King Cyrus is seceded by King Darius. And we know as we read further on in in the passage here that King Darius uh, eventually is is searching for the decree. 
And he finds the word. He finds the word of, of King Cyrus that said, hey, the children of Israel are sent back and they're supposed to be rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city. And so King Darius sets uh, some things in motion to relieve the opposition so that the children of Israel can move forward. It's during this time that Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying, prophesying in, the, in, in Jerusalem. It would take nearly 20 years. That from that point on, when King Darius made that decree, it added on, and it would take nearly 20 years for the children of Israel to get that temple built. 20 years. Because they gave in to the opposition. Something that should have been accomplished in a very short amount of time, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of their city. And it was nowhere where it should have been. The temple is finally built 20 years later, but the walls remain in ruin. The city remains in ruin. And the Lord puts it in the heart of Ezra to go. To go to Jerusalem and to teach the Word of God. We know that Ezra, he was a man like, man, I, man, I would love to be. The Bible says that he was totally given, wholly given to the law. He was dedicated. He was committed to the cause. We know that Ezra hold a very high ranking in the society in which he lived. Even as a prisoner, he, he had a very comfortable life. He was in the king's courts. He would have been a, a, a man of, of uh, political, um, st- you know, he had, a, he had a stand. He wasn't just your common prisoner. Uh, King Cyrus had, a, had a, a policy of letting people own property, even as slaves, and, 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 and uh, become somebody. And Ezra was one of those people. He was renowned in his time, not just as a scholar of the Word of God, but a, a scholar of all things. He was respected, and and, uh, it's believed that that's one of the reasons why the king uh, honored his request to go back to his hometown. And Ezra gathers together uh, some uh, roughly around 2,000 people and goes back to Israel. I skipped something very important. I want to go back to it here. That 20 years marks Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple. In between chapter 6 and chapter 7, where Ezra begins his part of this process, is a gap of 58 years. Between the part where the temple's rebuilt and Ezra starts to make his trip and journey, the second journey of the release of the children uh, in captivity, there's 58 years. You know what takes place in that 58 years? The book of Esther. Isn't that interesting to note? Think about this. Esther takes place in between Ezra 6 and Ezra chapter 7. 58-year gap there. If if, If Esther wasn't obedient and wasn't submissive and didn't do exactly what... And, and, and follow God's direction, go before the king even though it was against the law and, 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 and go and, and make a stand for her people, where would Ezra and Nehemiah been? Where would the rest of the construction of, and rebuilding of Jerusalem ended up? Well, it would have ended right there because they would have been dead. Yeah. They would have been hanged on, on, a, on, on Haman's gallows. 
And so between these two, these two chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 7, the story of Esther takes place. And man, doesn't that give you a, a much deeper respect for Esther? We already know she was a great lady and she did tremendous things and such a great stand. But here uh, she, she prolonged it where the, the city of, of Jerusalem should have already been rebuilt, where God's people gave up and didn't continue the fight and didn't build the way they should have been and gave into the opposition. Here Esther steps in and prolongs their ability to be able to rebuild their city and to get back home and to rebuild the fences. Man, it's awesome. I, I think it's awesome to see this working, how God orchestrated it, and how one simple person who was, who was surrendered to God made such a huge difference in the, the result and the outcome of a nation. And so here, Esther steps in and, and saves the people. And now Ezra, Ezra chapter 7. And Ezra begins his process. He goes to the king and asks that he goes back. He asks for uh, letters of passport to, to, to safely get across. He, he asks to take people with him. And he separates uh, or t- some around 2,000 people to go with him. And they begin the journey. Four months later, Ezra and the people that he have uh, arrive in the city uh, of Jerusalem. And we see that Ezra is, is met, when he gets to Jerusalem, he's, there's a little shock in his, in his tone of voice. We can see in the, in the scripture that he's surprised to see the condition of, of Jerusalem. He's surprised to hear about uh, what's going on. Because not only are the walls not rebuilt and the city rebuilt, uh, the temple is in place finally, but uh, the city is not rebuilt. And not only is the city not rebuilt, the spiritual condition of God's people is totally a mess. Totally destroyed. And where Ezra felt he was coming back to teach and to encourage uh, the, the believers, those, the, those that were uh, the Jews, the faithful Jews, uh, and to teach the law, he comes back to a, a spiritual mess. In Ezra chapter 9, we see the condition of God's people. And as I said tonight, I want us to notice some important truths that before the walls were built, before the walls went up. And we see in Ezra chapter 9 something that I think to be so important. Ezra chapter 9 and verse number 1. And it says, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and the rulers hath been chief in this trespass. It's been 80 years. 80 years since the children of Israel first came back to their home city with the express purpose of rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls. And while they were so focused on rebuilding the temple and rebuilding their walls and their defenses to protect themselves against the enemy's attack, the enemy was at work in their hearts. They're building the temple. They're building the walls. Worried about all those that are around them. Remember that immediately, as soon as they got there, the enemy began to attack. 
And they were opposed, and, and they, they were not making the progress that they wanted. And obviously we know that they fought back, but uh, eventually gave up. And while they were so busy and so focused on rebuilding their temple and rebuilding their walls and trying to defend their city, they left their hearts unguarded. And it needs to be a warning to us all tonight that sit under my voice in all of Christianity today, we are in the same spiritual condition as the children of Israel were at this point. Today we are so consumed as Christians with putting up the walls and putting up the spiritual monuments in our lives, putting up the the things that are external, that we are so often very lax with our defense of this. We're so busy putting up the facade and making sure we look like uh, the Christian that we ought to be, that we neglect becoming the Christian that we ought to be. We're so quick to jump at the obvious attacks of the enemy. You know, sodomy, it's a horrible sin. I can't believe it's infiltrating our nation. We're so quick to jump on it and to preach against it. And it is an abomination. We know that it's wrong. Immorality, unfaithfulness to God's house, the robbing of the tithes and the offerings, not being faithful uh, to to the house of God. And the decay of, uh, of morals in our society. And we'll jump on them right away and say, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. But this goes unguarded. We're so busy putting up walls of protection in our lives that we neglect what is most important. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, the Bible tells us, Keep thy heart with all diligence. For out of it are the issues of life. Put away from thee a froward mouth, and perverse lips put far from thee. Let thine eyes look right on, and let thine eyelids look straight before thee. Ponder the path of thy feet, and let all thy ways be established. Turn not to the right hand, nor to the left hand. Remove thy foot from evil. And here we see the perfect picture of, of a relationship with God that begins right here and grows right here. Not about putting up walls and building protection, but about, hey, it's about me and my walk. I'm going to ponder the path of my feet. I'm going to watch where I'm going. I'm going to watch what I'm participating in. I am going to guard my heart because out of it are the issues of life. And we look around at us today and we say, why is it such a mess? Why are things falling apart? Why are so many Christian homes being destroyed? Why do over 55% of Christian marriages end in divorce? We're so busy legislating Christianity in our lives and to our families that it never grows here. And I'm guilty of it. I am guilty of it. While trying to protect our families, we neglected their hearts. We wonder in amazement how so many young people today go off the edge as soon as they are out of our protection or out from underneath our authority. And we say, why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? I'll tell you why. Because we've built walls their whole lives, but we never taught them to have this. Because we put up walls our whole lives. The reason that our marriages end in divorce and the reason that the church does not grow the way that it should is because we spend our whole lives building walls but never taking care of the heart issue, never having a relationship with God that is outside or bigger than just a monument or a structure. (sighs) 
I am convinced more than ever, it's not for a lack of a watchman looking over the walls that, to protect us. It's for lack of a watchman looking into our hearts that is the destruction of the church today. We're so busy peering saying, stay away from over there, and here comes an attack over here, and here's this over here. we got to keep an eye on them, make sure uh, those people over there, we need to separate from them. Don't be a part of that. They're mixed up in the wrong stuff. And look at them over there, and all the time we're looking over there, but we neglect this. And we ought to have our eyes out there, but not until this is established. And when this is established and built up, then, then we'll be able to look out with strength and clarity and boldness and say, stay away from that. But this has got to be built first. Amen. This has got to be established first. We've got to be separated. The principle that I... I see for us here is that we need to be separated from the world. We need to be separated from the world. The children of Israel, they spent so much time guarding their separation and trying to put up boundaries that they let the world creep in right here. And that separation begins in our hearts. Separation is not a wall. Separation is not a boundary. Separation is not a rule. Separation is a heart condition. It's the sanctifying of God in our lives. It's the, it's the part of our life, and I shared this in, in the Go Rally the other day, and I want to share it again today. When we sanctify God and we say, hey, it's, I'm going to let this begin in my heart. I'm going to separate my heart unto the Lord. We allow our hearts to be sanctified. And when we sanctify our hearts, we set it apart. We declare it holy ground. We consecrate it unto the Lord. It becomes a shrine built to, as a, a sanctified site. The word sanctify means all of those things. To set apart, to make holy, to consecrate, as in a small shrine built to sanctify. It also means to make legitimate. To make legitimate. You know, when I separate my heart unto God, what I'm talking about is a real relationship with the Lord. Not talking about building up walls and boundaries and all these things. Don't get me wrong. Don't take my words out of context tonight. They're important. They need to be in our lives. Boundaries and separation. It needs to be there. But it's got to stem from a heart relationship from God. Not just precepts put out in place. We need to make our relationship with the Lord legitimate. We need to make it real today. So many Christians, we are disconnected from the Lord today. We're disconnected. We're connected to everybody and everything else through the internet and our smartphones and, and every uh, technical, you know, technological advance in our society is so connected from everybody and thing, but disconnected from God. And Isaiah forewarned of it in his time, and we need to be forewarned of it today. In Isaiah 29, 13, it says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near to me with their mouths, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the precept of men. That's what had happened. A bunch of precepts put in place, a bunch of laws, a bunch of walls built up, but that's all that's known about God. The precepts of men. 
as Christians today, it's got to be more than precepts of men that is what the foundation of your relationship is built upon. Your relationship with God has got to be far more than simple precepts. Than somebody standing behind a desk screaming at you, telling you that you got to read your Bible. That you got to pray. That you got to be faithful to the house of God. It's got to get beyond that. And until we get beyond that as individuals, as Christians today, the city will never be rebuilt. We will continue to lose the next generation. Until it becomes real in our hearts. I know that there's times in my life that it's real. And I'm just going to be very transparent. There's times in my life when it's real. And there's times when it's not. And every one of us should be able to say that. Because we are not perfect. And I understand that. We understand that tonight. There is times when it is not real. But it ought to be. And when it's not, we ought to know that it's not. And we ought to say, I want it back. I want real Christianity back. And I want it to burn in my heart. And I want it to stir in my heart. I think it's important for us to note what was noted at the end of that verse in Ezra chapter 9. It said that the people had intermingled and married. And at the end of the verse, a very bold phrase popped right out at me. It said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves. Let me say it again. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves. You know what that phrase says to me? I don't care who you are. I don't care what you have. I don't care what position you hold. Everybody, everybody succumbs to this. The people of Israel, the Levites, and the priests, the whole hierarchy, everybody has this weakness. And everybody needs to be on guard for it. We need to make sure that our separation, it begins in our heart. It begins in our heart. Where is the relationship with God? Where is it at? What's the depth of it? Let me say, this sounds very familiar to this morning. It it does in some aspects. And the reason why is because it's something the Lord's been working on me in. And I think it's something that we as a church need. We need We need depth. We need Christians that are growing. The roots are growing. The roots are growing deeper and stronger. We have a great task in this city, and we have a bright future with what God has put in in, in our path with the new building and getting over there and and being able to reach our city. And we've seen the Lord bless, and we've seen the souls saved, and we've seen those attending our church and visitors coming and play. But all of that. You know, it's so important for the growth of the church. But growth does not just have to be new folks coming in. There's got to be growth in our lives. 
We've got to be set in place and ready and established so that when God starts to dump the unbelievers on us, when the visitors start to pour in and there's so many lost and unsaved that are needing to know that we are grounded, that we're built up, that our faith is strong and that we can teach others also, not just only by precepts of men, but we can teach others also by our lives. We need to be separated in our hearts. Don't focus so much on those boundaries. So focused on all of this stuff right out here. I'm, I'm, I'm up to here with it. And don't get me wrong, I, I, am, I, prob- I probably have standards that you would say, this guy is nuts. You probably would. If I started saying the things that I believe in, that I believe the Lord has made clear to me. You probably say I was nuts. I am for standards. For having them in your life and having convictions. But they must stem from that relationship with God. And it's got to be more than superficial. It's got to get real. You hear me, young people? It's got to be real in your lives. It can't just be your youth pastor that you're living off of the spirituality of. It cannot be your parents that you're living off of their spirituality. College students, it cannot be uh, just the leftovers of what you got while you were in high school that's that's tagging you along. It's got to be real in your life now. you got to make it real in your life. And parents, while your children are at our home, make sure that you're holding them accountable so that it is real in their lives. Don't let them live in your home and, and not have any spiritual accountability. Don't say, oh, they're 18 now, they're on their own, they've got to, they've got to discover it for themselves. It's hogwash. Amen. It's ridiculous. You don't got to discover it for themselves. It's got to be taught to them. That's why God gave us a parents that we have. And I wouldn't have the relationship today that I have with my Heavenly Father if it wasn't for my father who all the way up until I was 18 and left the home for Bible college and still to this day, my mom will call me and say, Steve, what's the Lord speaking to you about? Spiritual accountability. And they're saying, hey, where are you growing? How are you learning? What's the Lord teaching you? That's what needs to happen. And that doesn't happen by putting down precepts and putting down rules and guidelines. It happens when God's people realize that a relationship with God has got to be real in our own hearts. And then from there, it stems out and infects those that are around us. Man, I'm thankful for my parents. Thankful for my dad. Thankful for my mom. The things that they ingrained in me, even though I hated it and wanted to kick against it and didn't want to hear it. Man, I can look back. And I'm thankful. My parents took stands. You better believe it. You don't think they had to kick one of a, you know, out of 11 kids, you don't think they had to kick somebody out of the home at some point? Yeah, it happened. You don't think that they had to say, hey, no, this person's living in sin and according to the word of God where they call themselves a Christian in Corinthians, the Bible says they call themselves a Christian and continue to live in sin. And my parents had to draw the line and say, no, I won't even sit down and fellowship with my own child because they're living in sin and call themselves a Christian. My parents did it. I saw it. You don't think that was hard for my mom to not be able to invite her child over for dinner? Isn't that what the Bible says? Do not sit down to eat with those living in immorality. 
The only reason and way my parents were able to do that is because there was something here. It wasn't just about rules and guidelines, and believe me, my parents had them. It was this. It was this. It was real in their lives. And I have no doubt it's the reason that they have four, five full-time preachers today out of their seven sons. Women that are married to preachers. Children that are faithful in serving God. Because it was real here. And I want to encourage us today as the church to make it real here. Make it real in our hearts. Secondly, not only do I see here before the walls were built that God's people needed to have separation that began in their hearts, but before the walls were built, God's people need to be able to recognize where their faults are. God's people need to be able to recognize where their faults lie. In Ezra chapter 10, moving forward, we see in Ezra chapter 10 verse 1, Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. Ezra is now in Jerusalem and he sees the sin and sees how horrible things are going for the children of Israel. And it breaks his heart. And the Bible says that he falls on the ground and and rents his clothes and cries out to God, God, forgive us for our sins. Forgive our nation. We've trespassed against your laws. We've trespassed against your guidelines for us. We have sinned. We are a wicked people. And we see Ezra begging God to forgive them. And as Ezra is begging God down on his face before the Lord, before the temple, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children. For the people wept very sore. And Shekinah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. And now there is a hope in Israel concerning this thing. You think about what's said here. The man of God comes up and he sees the condition of the children of Israel and it breaks his heart. He doesn't get up on the pedestal to preach. He doesn't say anything to the people yet. He gets before God and says, God, man, I'm a sinful creature. I've done so much wrong and and our people have done so much wrong before you. And he's on his face crying before the Lord, his heart broken because of the trespass of the children of Israel. And before he does anything else but get his relationship right with God, there gathers a great multitude of people. And they come in. Ezra didn't preach a message. Ezra didn't say anything to the children of Israel. The Bible doesn't record that he does. It says all that Ezra did was get on his knees and confess his sin and confess the sin of the nation. And all of a sudden, here come the people walking in saying, Ezra, we've trespassed. We've sinned. We've intermarried with the the people of this land when we weren't supposed to do that. We have trespassed against God. We have done wrong. You've got to give credit to where credit is due. The children of Israel realized that they had done something wrong. They made a big mistake here. And when God's man showed up and started asking for forgiveness and just got down on his knees and began to pray at the temple, the people were convicted in their hearts. We've sinned. We've trespassed. It's so important that we today recognize where our faults lie. 
where our faults lie. You know what we're good at today? Recognizing where other faults lie. Looking at the neighbor, the person in the pew, and saying, look at that. Look at what they're doing. When what God wants from us today is not extrospection, it's introspection. It's looking into the, our own hearts. He wants us to look in our, in our hearts and realize where our problems are. Matthew 7, it tells us to judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest now uh, not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the might of thine own eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? God doesn't want us looking at those that are sitting next to us and condemning their faults. God wants us looking here and realizing where our faults lie, where our problems are, where our shortcomings are, where our failures are, the pet sins that we have in our lives, the besetting sins that are controlling us and keeping us from being the Christians that we ought to be. And again, so often, so often, the wall of pride is so built up, so strong in our life, and we've built up the external that we can't even see the moat that is in our own eye. We can't see the beam that is in our own eye because we're so worried about putting up the protection, putting up the facade, making it all look good. Looking at others and casting judgment, but nothing, we can't see anything here. We can't see where we are at fault and our shortcomings. But we've got so many. We've got so many. Don't we? I mean, let the pride aside. We've got so many shortcomings in our lives. And it's time that we stop. We don't worry about the wall that's up, that we break down those barriers, those those barriers of pride and, 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 and self-esteem that get us so puffed up that we're worried about our image, that we're afraid to get things dealt with. And we start fixing the problems that we've got in our lives. We start fixing the problems that we've got in our homes. I don't care how you look. I don't care about what we think other people are going to think. It's time to break it down and to get the problems dealt with. If it means setting up a counseling session with pastor, then call the church, set up the meeting, and sit down with pastor. Well, I don't want him to get him involved in all of our personal business. You know, this is something we need to straighten out at home. Well, it's not being straightened out. So get somebody involved that can help you. It's time for us to fix these problems. You have that vice, that sin, that's besetting, that's holding on to in your life, and it's not letting go. It's got a grip of you, and you don't know how you're going to break it. Get some accountability. Get somebody in your life that can call you up, that can encourage you and ask you how you're doing. They know specifically what you're struggling with. They know the sin. They know the detail. They know what it is you're going through, and they're strong enough as Christians to be able to help you to sharpen. To sharpen you as iron should sharpen iron. But it's time that we put down the facade, we tear down the wall, and we realize that we've got faults and they need to be dealt with. 
Psalms 139 verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As we discover things in our lives that should not be there, we need to make sure that they're confessed. Man, we need to make sure that they're confessed and that they are dealt with. Not partially dealt with, not dealt with half the party, not the bitterness that you're angry at, you're bitter at the the two people at church and you go to the one person that you know is going to take it easily, but then you don't ever deal with the other problem. Hey, the problem's never been dealt with. I'm just a clue in here. You only deal with half the situation. The situation is still there in its entirety. You got something you're holding on to and you say, I'll get rid of this part. I've got a vice in my life that shouldn't be there. I'll go and confess it to God, but never go confess the person that it's been hurting all of this time. We got to deal with the whole issue. And man, why not deal with it? When His grace is new every morning, when His mercy is sufficient, or His grace is sufficient and His mercy is new every morning, why not deal with it? We have God's promise. Claim it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if that's God's promise to me, why not get it dealt with today? Why not fix that problem that's in my life? Why not get it straightened out? And take the steps that are necessary. The children of Israel just don't come to Ezra and say, Ezra, we confess our wrong. We've we've trespassed against God. No, did you notice what happened to the children of Israel? Here's what they do. They come to Ezra and they say, Ezra, we have trespassed against God. We have sinned. We have taken to marriage women of the country here that we should not have married. And we've had children as a result of these marriages. But here's what they come to to Ezra and say. Not only have we sinned, Ezra, and we've done wrong confessing it. They come to Ezra and say, we're confessing our sin. They go before God. God, we've trespassed against you. But then they say, now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise for this matter belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. Then arose Ezra and he made the chief priests and the Levites and all of Israel to swear that they should do according to his word and they swore. You say, wow, that's a tough pill to swallow. Isn't it? They put away their wives. They put away the children from those marriages. And we say, what? What's going on? How can that be right? It was sin. It was wrong. It should have never taken place in the first place. And the children of Israel say, we've sinned, we've trespassed against God. They come with a repentant attitude. We see that because they came weeping sorely. And said, Ezra, we have sinned, we've trespassed against God, and we ask for forgiveness before God, but not only that, we are going to put away our wives, and we're going to put away those children. And they said, we need you to help us with this. Ezra, this is to you. That's what they said. Ezra, this is to you to do. It's not that Ezra was going to walk up and say, all right, throw the wife out the city. No, they're saying, Ezra, we need some help with this. We need someone to encourage us along the way. And here comes in Ezra and says, all right, 
I'll help you. I'll help you. I hope you get this straightened out. And the children of Israel realized what they have done. They realized the sin that was in their life. They realized that they were wrong, and they went before God and asked for forgiveness. But not only did they ask for forgiveness, they put a plan in place to get their hearts right with God and got accountability in it. Man. But so busy. We're worried about the walls. We're worried about the picture. We're worried about what people will see. You don't think that this was right out there in the open? <laughs> One day you got a wife and three kids, and the next day you got none. You don't think people noticed? Yeah, people noticed. I'm sure of it. But it was what was necessary in order for their hearts to be right with God, and they said, we will do it. We're going to need some help, but we will do it. And it gets done. It gets done. brings me to third and final thought for this evening. It's not only what must we realize where we're wrong and get it dealt with, but we must realize the importance of spiritually strong marriages. We're so worried about the picture today of what our home is and what our marriage is like that more than not, our marriages are weaker than they appear. Our marriages are weaker than they appear. They may look okay. They come to church and people say, oh, that's a good marriage. They may even look at you and say, that's an example to follow. But behind closed doors, the marriage is nowhere where it should be. And we're so worried about that picture, that, that what people think about us, that we'll never get it fixed. We're worried about keeping that wall up. Christians tonight, God is not looking for a, a, a Christian that looks strong. He's looking for a Christian that is broken. He's looking for broken Christians. He's looking for marriages that are broken. That They're, they're not broken as far as the relationship, but they're broken in unity before God. And they're growing spiritually the way that they should be growing. And the relationship has the strength that it should have internally, not externally. The view that looks good. The arm around the, the spouse at church and the, the walking with holding of hands. And they're good if they're real, but is it just put on? We need some spiritually strong marriages in our churches today and in our nation. This goes to home. This goes to church. This goes to church, so goes the world. But it starts in the home. You see, the children of Israel realized that not only had they sinned in taking in marriage the people of that land, but you know what they had done along with that? Because of their sin and their marriage and their marriages were not right, they were not only ruining the present, with their sin. They were diluting the inheritance of God into the future because the marriages were not what they should be. And where these children really had nothing to do with their parents' sin, these children were the dilution of the children of Israel. Where God said, I will preserve my land as an inheritance for my people, now the inheritance wouldn't have been just for His people. It would have been for the, the Samaritans and the Philistines and the Amorites and all those people that were mentioned because of the marriages 
Because the marriages weren't what they should be. And so the inheritance of God was being corrupted and destroyed. And now the world was going to take part of the inheritance of God. And let that sink in in our minds for a minute. Our marriages aren't what they should be. They're not, they don't have the strength that they ought to have. And because they don't have the strength that they ought to have, not only are we ruining the present right now in our lives and not having the joy of the right relationship with God as two become one and serve God together, not only are we ruining this right here, but we're ruining the next generation. We're not even giving them a fighting chance. But it starts in our marriages. We've all got problems in our marriages. You could have a very strong marriage and still have something to work on. We've all got things that we need to work on and correct. And there may be hundred good things, but only one bad thing. It's just spoiling the whole pot. But we're not getting it dealt with. And I want to challenge us tonight and ask us, what's it going to take for us to get that thing dealt with? The children of Israel, they came to the realization in their lives and said, hey, not only are we sinning and we're destroying our lives and we are not right with God, but we're destroying the next generation by intermingling with the world. And we don't want that to happen. I said it this morning, I'll say it again tonight. I do not want my child, my children, to fall off the deep end. There's not a lot that I can do outside of being surrendered to God like we talked about this morning being the example that I ought to be. And the example is strongest at your home. What your children see. What your children witness. How they see you interact. How they see you respond. What they see you watch. What they see in your walk with God. How they see you respond to the preacher. That's where it starts. It starts in our marriages, in our homes. Ezra. Ezra spent 11 years in Jerusalem before Nehemiah ever showed up. 11 years. It took 11 years for Ezra to get these people straightened up before God ever sent anybody along to build up the walls. And we flip-flop it. We build up all the walls we put everything up out here and we never get this thing straightened out. We never get this thing dealt with. We never realize and, and let separation begin in our hearts 
We never get to the point where we can recognize that we're most of the time the ones at fault. We never get to the point where we get our marriages straightened out. We just build up the walls. Make it all look like it's something. It took Ezra 11 years to get the children of Israel spiritually squared away. It took Nehemiah 52 days to put up the walls. That should put some emphasis on what's important. We spend so little time in our walk with God and we spend a majority of our time in the building up of the walls. Guard against this. You can't do this. Sit at home, we'll flip on the TV and say, oh, I can't watch that, we can't watch that, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. We spend ten minutes in our devotions, we spend four hours trying to find something to watch on TV. That's called building walls and not spirituality. Putting up a bunch of, legislating a bunch of rules. No, don't do that, 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 don't do that. But never deal with this. It's clear to me. When the strong, when, when the internal is growing and strong, we can withstand the attacks of the enemy. You know, when the internal is strong, we can withstand the attacks. God is faithful. He will not suffer to be tempted above that you're able, but will with that temptation make a way of escape that she may be able to bear it. That's talking about something going on between right here and God. And so when that temptation comes and the trial, the thing comes in my life that is going to be difficult for me, if I'm in the right relationship with God and I have established this with God, I will be able to stand. No walls talked about. It's that relationship with God that's oh so important. And once this is established, then we say, you know what, I'm going to set a boundary over here to avoid temptation. And I'm not going to go this way of the, of the, of the, uh, of the harlot. I'm not going to go down the street because I know temptation may be down there. And then we begin to set up the boundaries in our lives. But after this is strengthened, after this is grown, after this is established, I've got this in place and I know that it's deep and it's strong in between me and God. That's the time to put down some boundaries. And I want to challenge us tonight I'm not talking about tonight where your separations are at. I'm not talking about whether you think it's okay or or that you think it's sinful to wear pants and you have to wear skirts. I'm not talking about tonight uh, whether you think it's sinful um, to go to the movies or not. I'm talking about this between you and God. Between me and God. And putting for, for, for a change in our lives some priority on this. And it's not so much priority on putting up the wall. We've got to put some things down in our hearts. We've got to get some things dealt with in our hearts. And I want to encourage us tonight. This is not a message. I do not want this message, have no intent for this message to be a, a, a feeling of chastisement tonight. I want it to be convicting and I want it to speak to us, but I want it to be encouragement for us tonight. 
That we don't have to live our whole lives just putting mortar on brick and trying to defend against attacks. That we can have something stronger and greater than walls that are simply built for our protection. That we can have a relationship with God that goes beyond sand and gravel and some kind of filter to guard us from the enemy and his attacks. But we have something deeper and stronger here. And I want to encourage us tonight, get, let's get this developed. It's possible. It's a lot easier than you may think. The devil's going to tell you it's hard, it's difficult, it's such a, a hard road to hope, but my burden is easy. My burden is light. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's time that we get it straightened out. It's time that we get it fixed. I think every single one of us in this room tonight, if we have any sense in our heads, I know that in my life, as soon as I began to study this out and and see these principles uh, uh, come to light, I began to point out and notice immediately things in my life where I've put up boundaries but don't have it established here. And tonight, I invite you... I encourage you, I implore you. Put him, push him aside for a moment. Get down to this altar. And start the process of building something here in your heart. Don't worry about where you're going to eat. Put the phone down. Disconnect for a moment. Get your mind untangled. We came tonight to do business, didn't we? We came tonight to church to hear from God. We came tonight to church to be changed, to leave this place different than we came. And I know without a shadow of a doubt, not pride speaking, not arrogance speaking tonight, I know that I have failures in my life that need to be dealt with. And I know that we as a church collectively all have things that need to be straightened up. So many precepts that need to be forgotten about for a moment, long enough for us to get this, our heart, squared away. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with some sin in your life that is hindering you from being where you should be with God. Maybe it's that your separation is just symbolic and not personal. It's just a facade. You know, a facade is a fake front. False front. I'm tired. I'm tired in my life of false front Christianity. I see it creep up. I want to deal with it. I'm tired of some struggles that I've been having in my marriage that I want to get straightened out with my wife. I'm tired of simply always looking out and saying the problem lies with this person. The reason that this is going on in our church is because of them and that and this. And I want to get me figured out. I want us all to stand this evening if you would.